he evidently had unshakable faith in the ultimate triumph of right. Hello and welcome to the Royal Melbourne Hospital podcast, a podcast made for junior doctors and medical students to ask those questions of bosses that you are too afraid to ask. Every episode, we choose a common and quizzical hospital problem, and then we review a paper that questions our practice. This week, to PE or not to PE, with Dr. Gary Hammerschlag, aka The Hammer, one of our respiratory physicians here at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Thanks for joining us, Gary. Thanks for the invitation. I prefer to be known as Dr. MD Hammer. Gary, I want us to talk about the diagnosis, assessment and management of PE as three separate components. And I want to start by saying, I was told when I was a young whippersnapper that if you think of PE, then you should investigate it. But it seems to me that that axiom just ends up with me ordering CTPAs and hoping that the GFR is going to be high enough for me to give them contrast. So I'm going to start by asking you a simple yet quagmired question. Do we over-investigate for acute PE? I think we do. If you look at the incidence of PEs, it's certainly increasing with time, but the mortality hasn't really changed over the last 10 years. And that's probably due to the fact that CTPAs are much easier to get than back in the, you know, when you had to do a pulmonary angiogram. We're probably not using verified or validated scores to sort of decide whether a CTPA is worthwhile. Can I ask about those other situations where you sit there scratching your head as a general medical registrar at a met call, for example, the unexplained tachycardia, and you're like, oh, I've got to think of PE now. Is that something we should be investigating or it should be so far down our list it's not even worth it? Tachycardia is certainly one of the, um, the symptoms of a pulmonary embolism. And the, one of the large trials from 2004 called the Prospective Investigation of Pulmonary Embolism Diagnosis or the PIOPED study showed that an unexplained tachycardia is present in about 30% of acute pulmonary emboli. So I think if we've excluded everything else, I certainly think it's worth thinking about. At the same time, the scores that are available, such as the Wells score for PE, should certainly be looked at. And and, and tachycardia is one of those points. I want to turn my first question on its head and not talk about acute PE now, but talk about chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension and chronic PEs. And I want you to comment, do we under-investigate for this clinical entity and describe to us this entity a little bit? Chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is a difficult condition and certainly underdiagnosed. And the studies that have been performed think that the incidence is somewhere between about 1% and 5%. It's usually presents within two years of an acute pulmonary embolism. So beyond that, it's very, very rare. Um, and the median age is around about 63 years old. In the early stages, it's very, very difficult to pick up, and the most common presenting symptoms are exactly those of acute pulmonary embolism, so shortness of breath, unexplained chest pain, and in more advanced disease, right heart failure. Let's get back to acute pulmonary embolism, and let's talk about the Wells score, which you alluded to previously. Wells clearly has a place, it's something that we're taught and rammed into us that it's very important, but when does the Wells score not work for pulmonary embolism? I think the well score is a very good uh, score, particularly, as you've mentioned previously, we perhaps are over-investigating with CT scans. But the one case where the well score has been shown not to work is in the elderly. So there's one study which 
uh, looked at patients over the age of 60 that shows the Wells misdiagnosed high-risk patients in about 2.9% of cases. So um, that's certainly somebody that you, um, certain group of patients that you should have a higher suspicion for. Talking about ruling out criteria and PERC, the pulmonary embolus rule out criteria, which I've tended to use a lot when locuming by myself in the middle of the country, is that just common sense or is it something that we should be using as well? It probably is common sense, but it's one of those situations where I think having a validated score is very useful. And as you've mentioned, it's more for those patients who have an unlikely probability of having a pulmonary embolism. So it's predominantly used in low-risk patients, and it's more used to determine whether or not you should be going down the diagnostic imaging pathway. Um, and the score certainly does make sense, but when you're locuming on your own, it's easier to do everything rather than nothing, whereas this is a validated score that you can at least hang your hat on. I'm not going to attempt to justify why or why we should not use arterial blood gases to a respiratory physician. It's barking up the wrong tree. But in the absence of an AA gradient on an arterial blood gas, is that enough to rule out a PE or at least a clinically significant one? Um, a number of studies have uh, looked at this and a normal AA gradient or a normal ABG can be present in up to 20% of fairly large PEs. So I, I don't think a normal AA gradient is enough to exclude um, a clinically significant pulmonary embolism. The other advantage just with ABGs aside from that is there is some prognostic value in performing it. So hypoxemia diagnosis um, suggests an increased risk of in-hospital complications. Before we move on to imaging, can I ask what is your approach to assessing briefly the potential for PE in the pregnant patient? Again, another very difficult topic. So. We obviously want to try and avoid radiation in these patients. So in pregnant women, I think the first thing to look at is whether they've got any clinical signs of a DVT. And if the clinical signs of a DVT, then a compression ultrasound is probably your first investigation because if that's positive, you're going to anticoagulate them anyway and you're not going to have to proceed to any radiation imaging. If that's negative or there's no signs, then the next step, which, and I'm assuming most patients would have had a chest x-ray already, if the chest x-ray is clear, then you can probably go on to a VQ scan, which does have a lower fetal radiation dose. If the chest x-ray suggests something else, if the patient does have uh, congenital lung disease or there's a reason that it's not clear that doesn't explain their hypoxia or their symptoms, um, a VQ scan is not very useful in that situation. And then the next step in that case would be a CTPA. Speaking of which, any discussion about PE diagnosis wouldn't be complete with the old CTPA versus VQ chestnut. Outside of the renally impaired patient, tell us when you would prefer VQ over a CTPA. So I think that VQ has gone out of favour a little bit, but there are some very good reasons to do it. So you've mentioned chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, and in that situation, um, VQ scan is much better. A CTPA is very good for low bar or segmental PEs, but as you get to the subsegmental level, it's not quite as sensitive. Um, in which case a VQ scan is much better. So in patients presenting with heart failure or pulmonary hypertension or somebody you suspect of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, a VQ scan should be used. 
The other reason, aside from the renally impaired patients, is perhaps younger patients, particularly young women um, with the lower radiation dose. If they've got a clear chest X-ray, a VQ scan is just as good to pick up PEs. This is also a hotly debated topic, but whether we should be doing VQ scans following treatment of PEs, and there's no clear guidelines or evidence for this, but at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, at least in the respiratory unit, we do tend to do a follow-up VQ scan. The major reason is so that these patients who are probably at higher risk than the general population of getting a recurrence, you've got a new baseline scan for them so that if in five or ten years they were to represent with shortness of breath or chest pain that's unexplained, if there's something on the VQ scan, you can say, well, it's been there for 10 years, it's unlikely, or it's new and we should treat it. Can I ask, in that situation, if you know continual thromboembolic disease, you continue anticoagulating them? That's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult question, that, and um, it depends a little bit on the size of the residual defect and where it is and how many of them are, there are. So... A small subsegmental defect may not be because of chronic clots. It may be due to sort of vascular changes, in which case you can probably safely say you can come off it if that's what your plan is. But if you've got multiple segmental or larger clots, you'd be very hesitant to take them off anticoagulation because of this increased risk of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. So now we've diagnosed the PE. Let's move on to assessment of the patient with pulmonary embolus. To you, what is the most important component in assessing the severity of PE? I think the most important thing is hemodynamics. Um, it's really the only clear indication for sort of urgent thrombolysis. And I think in somebody who's hemodynamically unstable or shocked, that's, it's something you, you want to know. In the absence of that, other markers of right heart dysfunction or strain are important. So the easy one is an ECG looking for right heart strain. There are sort of evidence now for looking at the CTPA, things like straightening of the interventricular septum, reflux of contrast into the um, IVC or into the liver, um, and looking at the ratio of the right ventricle to left ventricle. And in the last few years, there's been a lot of interest in sort of blood biomarkers. So by that, I mean things like BNPs and troponins. Should we be getting an echo on every patient with a PE? I, I don't think we should be. So I think in a patient that has no evidence of hemodynamic instability or other evidence of uh, right heart dysfunction, I don't think it adds very much to your ongoing management. In a patient that's hemodynamically unstable or um, there is evidence of right heart dysfunction, an echo is very useful. Saying that, it's obviously a difficult test to get and um, it, it's probably not really going to be... We're not, able, we're not going to be able to do that. I would, um, you know, and that's where perhaps other markers, are, um, other markers of severity would be useful. What about composite scores like SPESI? Can you explain a little bit what the SPESI score is and how that's used in assessing severity of pulmonary embolus? So the um, PESI or the SPESI are validated scores and th they look more at mortality than anything else. So, you know, sort of a, they're very complicated scores. The SPESI is probably easier, but if you fall into the category three or four based on that, your, mortal your 
mortality is considered to be high and those are patients you'd want to keep in hospital rather than potentially sending them home for treatment. And that's, um, you know, that's become more of an issue in this day and age with limited resources, but more importantly with the novel oral anticoagulants. Let's move on from assessing the severity of pulmonary embolus to then assessing the etiology of such. In searching for a cause, should we be doing a thrombophilia screen on every patient? And what would you include in your basic thrombophilia screen? So I think people with provoked pulmonary emboli don't need a thrombophilia screen. And in people that are going to be on lifelong or indefinite anticoagulation don't need a thrombophilia screen um, because it's certainly not going to impact on their management. The one thing where that may change is if somebody's worried about family members, so genetic causes. In somebody with an unprovoked DVT or pulmonary embolism, you may consider an antiphospholipid. Or if there's somebody who's had a clot and there's evidence in a first-degree relative also of having it, you would want to do sort of hereditary thrombophilia screens. And by that, I'm talking about sort of prothrombin gene mutations, factor V, Leiden. Uh, you'd want to do protein C, protein S, and antithrombin 3. You may consider sort of hereditary thrombophilias in patients with an unprovoked uh, pulmonary embolism if they're with that first degree relative and you'd probably do all of those um, at that time. How hard do you look for malignancy in patients with PE, especially in patients who are supposed to be cured of their malignancy? So about 10% of patients with an unprovoked pulmonary embolism will present with a malignancy um, within five to 10 years. So, um, and, and most of those come within the first one to two years. One study showed that sort of extensive investigation didn't really change the five-year survival, but we've now, there are some guidelines suggesting we should be looking harder. So the NICE guidelines, which are the British guidelines for clinical excellence, suggest sort of at least a physical examination, chest x-ray, some routine blood tests and a urinalysis. And then if you're over 40 years of age and you've got no other explanation is to going on and doing a malignancy screen. And by that we would mean a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis and then other sort of age-specific investigations. So if you've diagnosed it on a VQ scan and somebody who's a smoker looking for a lung malignancy, in females you would consider a mammogram. And in Australia where the sort of um, guidelines for fecal or cold blood testing, you would consider a colonoscopy in somebody over the, over the age of 55. In somebody who's previously had a malignancy and then um, has now presented with an, an unprovoked uh, venothromboembolism, I would probably recommend looking for it, CT scanning. In terms of sort of what we do with treatment in these patients, they, patients with cancer and venous thromboembolism probably should be on prolonged anticoagulation anyway. So at the minimum three to six months, and then sort of following that, you can consider changing them over, or if their uh, cancer is, in inverted commas, cured, you may consider stopping that. Let's move on to management on that note, and I want to leave thrombolysis for the end of the interview, but I want to talk about anticoagulation now, and this is a question I'm going to be asking a lot this year, I'm finding myself doing, but uh, to NOAC or not to NOAC? Um, this is another thing that's becoming sort of a hot topic, and as I mentioned before, there's this push to try and treat patients out of hospital, and it's certainly much easier with the novel oral anticoagulants to do that, where you don't need bridging clexane before you start warfarin. 
In Australia at the moment, only rivaroxaban or Xarelto is approved for treatment of pulmonary embolism. And sort of that came out of one big study called the Einstein PE study, which showed that your risk of sort of recurrent venothromboembolism or a fatal PE was certainly reduced um, in using the NOAX as opposed to sort of the vitamin K antagonists. And it was a non-inferiority trial, and it certainly wasn't, it, it was non-inferior to that. There was also a very similar major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding. So there doesn't appear to be any um, uh, difference from that point of view. Just recently, the Einstein Extend study, which looked at more prolonged use of it in these patients, showed that there's a significant reduction in recurrent VTEs and bleeding by using the NOACs. And there is some evidence coming in now that you aren't at an increased risk of uh, bleeding in the um, patients with renal impairment. I will say that the the only downside at the moment is there's no reversing agent, um, which is an issue, but I do believe that the FDA in the US has made it one of their priorities and there are some phase three trials being run at the moment for a reversing agent, so that may not be far away. Might be an obvious question then, your personal clinical practice then? At present, patients that are young, no significant bleeding risk, um, I would tend to use the NOAX. Um, It's easier, there's no monitoring going on, and it's one dose fits all, essentially. Whereas at at present, despite the fact that there there has been shown in that Einstein Extend study that there's no um, increased risk of bleeding, um, in somebody in elderly falls risk or other significant comorbidities, I'm still tending to use warfarin because of that increased risk of bleeding with falls and the ability to reverse warfarin. Briefly, the therapeutic guidelines say that for provoked venous thromboembolism and unprovoked distal deep vein thrombosis, period of treatments for three months... Whilst first unprovoked or proximal DVT, the period of treatment is six months. Whilst the guidelines say indefinite treatment for unprovoked with a major risk factor or recurrent unprovoked venous thromboembolism is for forever. Do you think these guidelines are too aggressive? Uh, that's a, it's a difficult question to answer that, and I'm, I'm not sure whether aggressive is the right word. The recurrence rate after discontinuation of treatment is about 4.5% per year in an unprovoked PE. That's almost double the risk of recurrence in a provoked PE, which is about 2.5% per year. I think with that kind of risk, I think treating for a prolonged period of time is, is certainly worthwhile. The guidelines also suggest, however, that in um, unprovoked PEs with somebody with a low bleeding risk, you may offer them indefinite anticoagulation, even if it's their first VTE. It's, it's a question that needs to be discussed with the patient because there is an, you know 1% per year risk of bleeding with any long-term anticoagulation, and that needs to be discussed. There is some evidence now that if you are going to stop the long-term anticoagulation, putting somebody onto aspirin um, does reduce your risk of recurrence as well. So your risk of... Warfarin will stop your risk of recurrence by about 90%, so it's not 100% effective. Using aspirin only reduces it by about a third, so somewhere between 30 and 35%, but it has a significantly less risk of bleeding. So it's certainly something to think about as well. Are you routinely recommending aspirin now then for your patients long-term who've come off warfarin? Yeah, we we are using. So patients that want to come off, we do suggest uh, sort of 100 milligrams of aspirin uh, long-term as long as there's no contraindication to that. 
Before we move on to this week's paper, let's get back to a clinical entity we talked about previously, and that's the management of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Can you outline the management of this condition? The management is it's still a work in progress. So anticoagulation is obviously the first step because you want to prevent them from getting further clots. The issue with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is that you get um, fibrous buildup within the vessels and your pulmonary vascular resistance goes up, which, which causes pulmonary hypertension. By reducing your risk of recurrent thromboembolic disease, you hopefully can stop further increases in the pulmonary vascular resistance. However, if you've already got pulmonary hypertension, that's, you know, that's not really going to help. So there's a couple of options for treatment. Gold standard would be operation or surgery, which is done through a pulmonary endarterectomy. And it's a very specialized procedure where the cardiothoracic surgeon removes these sort of chronic clots you can imagine that it has to be very proximal clots for that to work. So the, the cases where that doesn't work is in where you've got really distal chronic thromboembolic disease you can't remove and surgery is not an option. In the inoperable patients or the operable patients who haven't had an improvement despite a um, thrombectomy or th endarterectomy, there's new management or medical management. And in the last year or so, um, a, a medication called Reassiguate has become available on PBS. And it's a stimulator of soluble guanylate cyclase. And that's now available for these kind of patients. The, the outcomes are not quite as good, obviously, as a, in inverted commas, cure with surgery. But it has been shown to increase cardiac output, reduce pulmonary pressures, and also improve exercise tolerance in these patients. As a last resort, lung transplantation is an option as well. Thanks for that, Gary. Let's move on to this week's paper. This is a paper published mid last year and was a meta-analysis that stoked the flames regarding thrombolysis in pulmonary embolus. Before we start, Gary, can you run us through the traditional indications for thrombolysis in pulmonary embolus? So really the only true indication for thrombolysis at present is in a massive pulmonary embolism. And when I say massive, I'm not talking about the size of the clots because we do know that the size of the clots doesn't really correlate with the severity of the illness. So really what we're worried about in these patients is their hemodynamic stability. So the definition of a massive pulmonary embolism is somebody who's either got a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 or their systolic pressure has dropped by greater than 40 millimetres of mercury for 15 minutes. That is a true, one of the true indications for thrombolysis. So now what are the non-traditional indications? The non-traditional or um, relative um, indications for thrombolysis are patients with right ventricular dysfunction, severe hypoxemia that's not really responding to supplemental oxygen, patients that have a patent foramen ovale where um, you could get a paradoxical stroke, any patients that are having CPR for some other reason that you suspect that they've got a pulmonary embolism. And if there's a very extensive clot burden, you may consider it. But again, as we know, the clot burden itself isn't indicative of a massive stroke. But if they've got a DVT as well and you're worried about one more clot sort of pushing them over the edge, you may consider it. And if there's a free-floating right atrial or ventricular thrombus, you may consider it then as well because of the risk of developing into a massive pulmonary embolism. 
So now let's get on to this paper from the Journal of the American Medical Association by Chatterjee et al. in mid-2014. What was the question the authors were addressing here and why was it controversial? So the authors here were looking at whether thrombolysis improves mortality and long-term outcomes in the patients that don't meet that massive pulmonary embolism. So they would be considered submassive, but they're at an intermediate risk. And by intermediate risk, they have evidence of right ventricular dysfunction. So their heart is already under strain. Can we improve their uh, mortality and their longer-term outcomes if we reduce the, um, the clot burden sooner? It's controversial because previous evidence have shown that even though you reduce the right ventricular systolic pressure sooner than if you if you just use normal anticoagulation, those previous studies have showed that after a week or longer term, your right ventricular systolic pressures are the same. So what they, this group here is slightly um, controversial as to whether we should be giving them something that has significant harms associated with it for something that may not have longer term improvement. So it was a meta-analysis. Let's talk about the methods first. How many trials did they include? How did the stats and how did you find them adequate or not? So it is a meta-analysis. And the problem with the meta-analysis is that the output is only as good as the input. So um, if the initial trials that are included are of poor quality, then the evidence following that is of poor quality. So this meta-analysis looked at 16 different trials. Eight of them were in the submassive PE group. But Of those 16, only two were, I think, sufficiently powered to actually answer the question. The results or the conclusions of the meta-analysis suggested that there is a mortality benefit by giving thrombolysis, but at the risk of significant increase in bleeding. The problem with these trials is the two largest trials, which were the PITO trial, P-E-I-T-H-O, or the TOPCO trial, which have only come out in the last year, year and a half, sort of made up most of the patients, and neither of them could conclusively show that there's a mortality benefit, which tells me that the mortality benefit that's coming out of the meta-analysis is really being swayed by the 14 much smaller trials that perhaps don't have the same rigorous statistical methods. And it makes the conclusions that are drawn very difficult to believe. So I'll go through those other two trials just so you can see what they were saying. So the PITO trial, which was a very large trial run out of Europe, showed that fewer people died by giving the thrombolysis so, and fewer hemodynamic collapse, less required inotropes and less required CPR. But the mortality outcome in those patients didn't actually reach statistical significance. They also found that there were significantly more patients that bled. So intracerebral hemorrhage in the the patients receiving thrombolysis was 2% versus 0.2% in the placebo group or the, the the traditional oral anticoagulation group. Why I mention that is that even though there perhaps was some improvement in the sort of the composite outcomes of hemodynamic collapse, inotropes, and CPR, the patients that had a bleed had a significantly increased mild to moderate persistent disability. So perhaps their actual quality of life following this was much poorer because of the strokes. 
The top coat trial showed similar kind of things. Now, it, it wasn't a well-run trial in that it was stopped early, so they had looked. They were wanted to look at ninety-day outcomes, but it was it stopped recruiting early, so we don't really know the results. But patients in that group, the placebo patients, were tr- um, had sort of their composite outcome was met twice as twice as likely as the thrombolysis group. So they were twice as likely to have, you know, needing CPR and inotropes. There was some improvement in the functional outcome in that group. When you looked at the subgroup analysis, both in the meta-analysis and the PITO trial, that increased bleeding risk was sort of in the elder in the older age group as well. So when they looked at the subgroup analysis in the PITO trial, the bleeding risk wasn't higher in the less than 75 age group. And in the meta-analysis, um, it was around about 65, they noticed above that, that the bleeding risk increased. So perhaps, you know, while I, I don't think the meta-analysis is a great trial, it does perhaps give us some idea of where we're heading in the future. The one thing I did want to mention in terms of the bleeding risk is a trial called the Moppet trial, which hasn't got a lot of press. And the reason I mention it is because I think it's worthwhile and it's perhaps where we're heading. The Moppet trial looked at low-dose thrombolysis in patients. And the reason for doing this is that the evidence for dosing thrombolysis in pulmonary embolism comes out of stroke thrombolysis and cardiac thrombolysis. And if you think about the physiology all your blood supply goes through the pulmonary vessels, whereas only a portion goes through the heart and the lungs. So the, th- the theory there is perhaps we don't actually need as high a dose, given that we- more of it is going to be going into the lungs. So they looked at half-dose thrombolysis, and their outcomes were much better with no increased risk of bleeding. And perhaps that's where we are heading in, in the future. I think, you know, in terms of sort of conclusions from this, there may be a mortality benefit and maybe we just weren't powered enough, but there is a significant risk of bleeding in the current dosing of thrombolysis. And um, I think that we need more trials looking at the subgroup that have an increased risk of bleeding or will have a benefit by using those other markers that we've talked about and perhaps reducing the dose of the thrombolysis we're going to be giving patients. I think that's a really interesting point you raise. We're always told that meta-analyses are the, you know, the upper echelon of evidence in what we do, and yet what we're talking about here is going back to another randomised control trial to answer a question that the meta-analysis has posed. Would you agree with that summary? Yeah, I would, and, and that's why I sort of mentioned, you know, meta-analysis, meta-analysis is meant to take into account all the trials, but if you're including really poor quality evidence and there's enough of them being included that the number of patients and those things sort of outweighs the, the good quality trials, the conclusions that are being drawn perhaps are not as accurate as they should be. And I think that when you look at the PITO trial, it was a really well-performed trial that I think that the evidence from that is certainly something that we can trust. Gary, there's so many other questions I want to ask, but we're going to run out of time. I want to ask about catheter-directed thrombolysis and all those things to come, but I want to finish with your personal opinion. Has this paper changed what you do in your clinical practice? I don't think it has in terms of going straight into thrombolizing somebody with sort of this intermediate risk pulmonary embolism that we've been talked about. I think what it does tell you, however, is that Perhaps these patients need to be much more closely monitored than the sort of lower risk patients. The risk of needing CPR or inotropes in the future, and by, that, by in the future I mean sort of one or two days later, 
suggests that we could certainly, you know, we should be keeping a close eye on patients that we don't want to thrombolize. Just going back to the data from the top coat and the PITO trial, that if you take it and if, if were we going to treat 1,000 patients, in thrombolysis you'd save about 12 deaths versus 18 deaths in this sort of placebo group. But the risk of that is sort of hemodynamic decompensation in 50 of the 1,000 patients in the placebo group versus 12 of the patients in the sort of thrombolysis group. And that sounds like a lot, but if you actually break down what that hemodynamic compensation is and what they require, in the thrombolysis group, of those 16, two would require CPR and six would require catecholamines, whereas in the placebo group, 10 would require CPR and 28 would require um, catecholamines. Now, if those patients are being very closely monitored, and by monitored I mean cardiac monitoring, you could potentially get on to things like inotropes and CPR early enough and then do what we would call sort of a deferred thrombolysis. Perhaps your outcomes will actually be better in those patients because you're not giving upfront thrombolysis, which has all those risks of bleeding we've talked about, but you're catching them early enough that you you don't give it to the patients that are going to get better and you save it for the patients that do have poor outcome from their PE. Fascinating. Thanks, Gary, for putting those figures together too, and um, we'll hopefully get those up on the website. I want to thank David Guy as well for uh, his time here, and Gary, Associate Professor Peter Morley and Lynn Denby from the Medical Education Unit for their support, and special thanks to Tim Fazio, our Senior Medical Register, for helping me nut out this episode, and we'll see you next time.